Are you recording now? Branch. 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 Branch out. A podcast from the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney. Vanessa Fuchs, and today's episode of Branch Out is a bit, well, gruesome. That sound you're hearing is the sound of a slow and certain death. So that's a, a bee that's unfortunately made itself inside uh, one of the Saracenias, um, and it's trying its best to escape, but um, it can't escape because the, the tube is too narrow, those downward pointing hairs are preventing it from climbing out, and unfortunately it's doomed. Do you ever feel tempted to help them? Things like lizards and uh, frogs, if they get trapped and I see them, I'll certainly help them out. But unfortunately, many of them don't make it back out. That's Greg Burke. By day, he's the curator manager at the Blue Mountains Botanic Garden. But every night, he goes back to his own private collection of freaky flesh eaters. As a carnivorous plant hunter, he knows more than most that blood and death it's just a part of nature. Okay, so here we've got Saracenia leucophylla, and if you take oh. a look inside. Oh, there's someone still alive. <laughs> so oh, under the lid there, <laughs> those beautiful glistening droplets of uh, sweet nectar. And then, you know, if we tear this open. Does that harm the plant or? Yes. Okay, we're doing it for science, guys. Yep. Oh, he's out. Look, we've saved a few native bees there. How many are in there? Oh, look. Oh, my God. The whole tube, I mean, we're, oh, this is unbelievable. This is like 20 centimetres of just dead bodies. Yeah, so, and that'll be all the way down to the bottom of that trap. Oh my God, we're talking more like 30. Body so. after body. <laughs> kind of gruesome though. <laughs> Their colour, like, it kind of looks like red veins and, I don't know, they do kind of seem like they're not plants and they're more like blood's pumping through them or something. Wow. And you can see there those downward pointing hairs. Yeah. So that's what prevents them from climbing back out. That's amazing. Yeah, and that's just one. You know. Yeah, just one. With around 300 species of carnivorous plants in his collection, Greg's greenhouses are a place of utter carnage. But that's nothing compared to what's on display at the Calyx at the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney. They might get bitten a bit, <laughs> bitten by the plant bug. <laughs> You might lose a few people. <laughs> we might lose them. Them off. I actually think the plants would bite. We might lose a few people. <laughs> the Plants with Bite exhibition at the Calyx just opened up and more than 25,000 murderous munchers are waiting to lure visitors into their traps. Now that's a lot of bloodthirsty plants and an insane idea, right? But when you meet the mastermind behind this vision, it's really not a surprise. Accents from Texas. Uh, this is definitely not a Nazi accent. I was told one time by... I'm a bit of an oddball. You can put this on or not. You can leave this off. <laughs> Most people either left brain or right brain. I think you're a I'm bit a of a, mid mid a I'm a dead-on midbrain. Yeah. That's Jimmy Turner. He's the horticulture director at the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney. Get to know him a bit more, and you'll see how his big Texas style has meant big things for this place, including the current Plants with Bite exhibition. I'm dividing the space up based on the trap type. So if it's a snap trap, like a Venus flytrap, which snaps shut, you know, 
bites you and holds on to you, or a bladder trap that sucks you in like a vacuum and drowns you, or the drown trap and the... Sweet, sweet nectar. Sweet, sweet nectar. Now come in and have a little bit of a sip and drown to death and feed me, yes. Every year there's a different exhibition theme, and Jimmy designed something new for the massive green wall, which is made up of over 18,000 individually potted plants. It's the largest interior green wall in the Southern Hemisphere, and it was only made possible after he completely redesigned the heart of the garden. The executive director came out and said, well, what do you want? I immediately gave my opinion, which I normally do and probably should have kept it to myself. It's like, I want a Broadway stage to plants. A Broadway stage for plants. <laughs> Kim looked at me across his eyes like, what the heck are you talking about? I'm too ADHD to have a tattoo. I can't pick one thing I'd ever have that would last for a lifetime. So no, I want a green wall I can change out. They looked at me like I had a snake on my head. There's no such thing. Well, I think two architecture firms finally gave up. I went and found the system. It's a changeable system. I can change that wall out in two days, two to three days. It's all a bunch of 100 millimeter pots stuck in there, like a little um, peg system. And how do you actually, how do you make it? How does it work? So I am a bit of a weird, I love design, I love art, I love plants, but I also absolutely love Excel. Oh, that's weird. That's totally different. So if you've got a giant green wall, that's a grid system, it's rows and columns. It's like playing Battleship. I don't know if you had that as kids here. Yeah, yeah. B-52, that's Euchre Purple Palace. Yes, B-42, the Alexio... You know, a yellow cedar. <laughs> it's literally, you know, it's the world's slowest dot matrix printer on that wall. Honestly, it's genius. He's created some kind of crazy horticultural design function in Microsoft Excel. So he uploads a picture of his proposed floral design for the green wall, and it could have words and shapes, and then it gets broken up into a grid, showing him what colour plant he needs to put where. It's the backdrop. It's the stage drop. It is the back of the Broadway stage. The floor is the actual stage. That's the backdrop curtains, lighting, sound, everything is in that building you would find on a stage, but it's for plants. Feed me. <laughs> Feed me, Seymour. And these plants are no stranger to the stage. Feed me. Must be fresh. Feed me, Seymour. Feed me all night long. Doesn't seem to have any central nervous system. Then how does it move? All plants move. They don't usually pull themselves out of the ground and chase you. And even though they've inspired the monster plants of Hollywood blockbusters, the reality of these plants is much stranger than fiction. Finding that out meant going back to Greg Burke's House of Horrors. We're just heading uh, out of Mount Toma, just a few kilometres. Uh, we're just going to have a quick visit to my private collection, which uh, shows the diversity of all the carnivorous plants that occur across the globe. Uh, I've got a, a special interest in Australian carnivorous plants, but I, I love being able to grow them and, and to grow them through a full life cycle, you understand exactly uh, how these plants function and why they are so unique. I can't wait to see them. You can tell me more about them. The, the plant we've got to start with, of course, is the Venus flytrap. It's got those ferocious-looking teeth, uh, obviously the moving parts of that closing trap. It's the one that captivates us all. How do they actually operate? Like, most plants you don't see move as fast as they do. Yeah, the leaf is divided into two halves, two lobes, and inside that leaf are a couple of sensitive trigger hairs. And when those trigger hairs are touched, 
uh, it sends an electrical pulse through the leaf. And if it's touched a second time or a second hair is touched within about 20 seconds, that triggers uh, movement in the plant. So the cells change, fluids transfer between cells to enact that closure. And it, it's very rapid, almost the blink of an eye. So when the reason that it has kind of like that second trigger that has to go off is is that just like a an energy conserving thing because it could just be a bit of dirt that touches the first hair spot on absolutely <laughs> yeah the plant doesn't want to waste energy by closing for the wrong reason so if the prey comes in and touches once and then flies away then it doesn't want to close and miss that that enacts the initial closure but it allows movement so the insect will then move around some more and that additional stimulation of those trigger hairs causes the trap to close even tighter and then the digestive enzymes are released. Has it got like a finite amount of times it can close? Yeah, each leaf is only good for about seven closures. Is that it? If it's unsuccessful uh, and they close and there's no food consumed, then that exhausts the plant over time. Well, why can't they just play nice? How did this freaky flora evolve to be a predator? So most plants, uh, they, they photosynthesize, and of course carnivorous plants uh, photosynthesize as well, but they're drawing their nutrients out of the soil. But where carnivorous plants have adapted to grow is, is nutrient poor. So the plants uh, need to find that nitrogen some other way. So the easiest way is to, to grab what's around you, and that's uh, insects. But without a mouth to munch on their victims, I mean, how do they eat? So they're, they're releasing enzymes onto the prey item that then breaks down uh, the guts and then that forms a fluid which can then be drawn into the plant. Gross, <laughs> but cool. Botanists have got a lot more to learn about how that digestion works with the fungi and algae that live in and around the exotic trappers like the Venus flytrap. But snap traps is just one way carnivorous plants trap and trick their prey. These picture plants from America's deep south have got a different killing strategy. These guys are, are just incredible and uh, probably the, the biggest killers in my collection. How are they so deadly? It's really quite a simple folded leaf. If you think of a standard leaf rolled around so the edges of the leaf are touching, um, it then forms a tube. It then produces a small lid over the top which stops the um, rain from going into the trap itself. And then it produces this beautiful honey-sweet nectar uh, under that lid, which is attracting the prey. The leaf texture itself is very colourful and mimics a flower, so uh, attracts a lot of butterflies and moths. We also have a, a number of these plants that mimic carrion, so they're looking like meat um, to attract the flies. And so they fall in coming towards the nectar and everything, and then what, tumble down and yeah, they, they, come out? They lose their footing up in the mouth there and they'll slip inside. Once they're inside, the, the leaf is lined with downward pointing hairs and those downward pointing hairs make it nearly impossible to climb out. And oh, and it gets sneakier than that. Another type of pitcher plant has these windows of clear cells on the back of their tube of death. The insect will move into the mouth and it's had a bit of a feed on the nectar and as it gets confused about where to escape, it sees these windows of light and thinks, that's the way I've got to fly to escape this plant. So it'll fly towards the windows, hits the back of the leaf and falls down. What's the biggest thing a carnivorous plant could eat? A rat. A rat! <laughs> oh! This is not their target prey though. Oh my God, do you think they'll evolve to eat humans? Uh. <laughs> We can only hope. <laughs> hope? 
but it's not all predator and prey. Some pitchers have learned to live with the animals around them. You could even kind of say they've gone vegetarian. Every time I go out in the field, I'm still amazed by what these guys do. We're talking about the relationship with rats and, and marsupials. Actually, one of the, the parent species of this one in my hand is Nepenthes lowii, and it has these toilet-shaped traps. And it, its lid sits up a bit, and underneath the lid it produces this fatty uh, secretion, which is attractive to the, the rats and the uh, tree shrews. They come along and have a feed, and they deposit their droppings into the pitcher. So it is like a toilet? It's a toilet for marsupials, yeah. What do they get out of the droppings? It's, it's like pelletized fertilizer. Oh my God. Some pitcher plants have become so clever, they've developed these glands that detect an insect's movements and have these waxy surfaces that clog up an insect's feet so they slip down to their death. One tricky character even acts differently in different weather to maximize its meal time. But what we've found with some of these plants is that some are slippery when wet and some are slippery when dry. I know the Bon Jovi's the theme, right, for this podcast. So if you're thinking about attracting, say, ants, it doesn't make sense that every ant that visits, visits your trap will fall in and die because how will the other ants know to come and get a feed? So when the trap's dry, the ants won't fall in. They've got grip. So they'll come and have a feed of the nectar under the lid, then go back to the, the nest and tell their, their mates that there's food here. In the meantime, it's rained and now the, the peristome has become wet, so it's now slippery. And the ants come to feed and slip inside. That's so cool. But like, yeah, so tricky and sneaky as well. Let's look at one of the fastest moving plants on the planet. What? We'll go back outside. Ooh. So now we're diving into the, the what water. What are you doing? You're just pulling out some kind of like, what looks like seaweed, but... Yeah, if we just put that in and it opens up oh, again. Yeah. So yeah. it's it's a bladder wart ah. um, or utricularia. Uh, the trap itself is bladder shaped. It has lowers its pressure by pushing fluid out of the cell walls. And then when a prey item comes near the door, it triggers some hairs very similar to the Venus flytrap. The uh, door snaps open, sucks the prey inside, and then snaps shut. Have you seen it do it? It's far too fast for the human eye to see. But oh, really? Yeah, I've certainly seen them capture prey, but we're talking... I was here waiting, and I'm like <laughs> looking and waiting for something. No, um, a couple of milliseconds, that's it. Oh, man. Even in high-speed camera, you slow it right down, it's still almost impossible. Going through Greg's greenhouses, my mind is continually blown, and I haven't even told you about the sundews yet. They're tentacles with sticky droplets just wait for a passerby to get stuck so they can slowly suck them into their jaws of death. Or, or the trigger plant that traps visiting bees on the back with pollen and then turns off the nectar tap. There's one last thing Greg wants to show me before we go. This is one you've really got to see because, uh, and, and a, possibly my favourite picture plant. <laughs> Another favourite. This one here is, is unique in that it only occurs uh, on one mountain, and that's Mount Trismati in Borneo, but it can produce traps that are over 40 centimetres tall. It's actually a natural hybrid. Yep, you heard him. He said hybrid. Those fictional horror films? They're not totally off the mark. 
Even though there are natural hybrids, Greg, Jimmy, and the creative team of horticulturists at the gardens have been playing a bit of mad scientists and breeding their own hybrid flesh-eating plants. Several different species, a lot of hybrids. There's really only one species of Venus flytrap, but we've got how many different... I've got 30 different cultivars, varieties that we've made by man. Why? Because some of them have got traps bigger than your thumb. Some got little tiny ones. Some are bright red. Some are purple. So we've made those. They didn't exist in a while. The genetics did, but we actually put them there because they're a bit cool. But the biggest challenge is keeping them alive. So all of these plants have very different requirements. They like it a bit warmer, a bit more humid. So it's playing with all those things. And it's really using our horticultural science and art to keep those puppies alive and looking good. And the one thing I will say is if you come once and you think you've seen it, a lot of these plants bloom at different times, get bigger. The, uh, my favorite, the Saracenias, the pitcher plants. The pitchers are gorgeous because most people don't realize the flowers look like something from an alien planet. They pop up, they're upside down flowers, they hang upside down, the flies go in it and run around inside of them like a ferris wheel, then pop out the other side. It looks like a roach trap. But they're bright, you know, the little roach traps, the black plastic ones? Yeah, yeah. It looks like one of those upside down hanging from a plant, but they're bright red, yellow, orange, pink, white. They're really cool looking, and those will be happening a few weeks after we open. And the pitchers will be coming and going. The Venus flytraps will be growing over time and getting bigger and spreading. The Drosera, the native Australian sundew, will probably start out with several thousand of those. By the end of the exhibit, there'll be millions of them because they spread everywhere. They're happy, they'll be just coating the whole bed so it'll just be one giant piece of sticky flypaper. Oh <laughs> if you fall on the bed, I'm sorry. You, <laughs> done you've done your donation to the plants. <laughs> you don't need to feed them that you week. You don't need to feed them that week. Must be blood. One thing you don't do for 11 months is play with plants in the exhibit because you don't know. Must be a fresh. And that's all I'm going to give away for now. If you're hungry for more, you'll just have to come down to the Plants with Bite exhibition at the Calyx in Sydney. That's if you dare. Thanks for listening to this freaky episode of Branch Out. If you like the show, please subscribe and give it five stars in your app. You probably don't need any encouraging, but you can check out the Plants with Bite exhibition at the Calyx from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. every day. And if you love a good plant pick, follow the Royal Botanic Garden Sydney on Twitter or Facebook. We're often sharing the crazy, incredible things both Greg and Jimmy are up to. I'm Vanessa Fuchs, and Tom Allenson produced this episode of Branch Out.